Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 92, being recorded on Monday, July 10th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy Prime Day Eve. Happy Prime Day Eve to you, Scott. Yeah, we're recording here on July 10th. Prime deals have launched, uh, well, the Alexa deals exclusives came out days ago i think i don't like five days ago and then now here at nine o'clock they've launched some of the web deals so it's pretty exciting yeah have you made a bunch of purchases yet i haven't i'm kind of just kind of keeping an eye i uh one of the things i suffer from that i think you probably have is i already have a fair number of amazon devices so those seem to be the most discounted items and unfortunately i already have a, a pretty full dance card there yeah i'm in the same boat it feels like there's a lot of deals but it's slightly tricky to identify the deals that would be personally interesting to you. Like as, as is a problem with Amazon and many other areas, discovery is not their strength. Yeah. Did see some pretty interesting, the echo ones have been pretty dramatically off, you know, so I've seen some 30, 40, 50% off. So it's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. If you haven't invested in the hardware, it, uh, this is definitely the right time to buy the hardware. And that would extend to like Kindles and stuff too. So like the, a lot of interesting things you can do with Kindle tablets. You can jailbreak them and put other operating systems and stuff on them. So I know a lot of people that use Prime Day as an opportunity to stock up on hardware. Cool. And this is our first uh, show in July. We took a little bit of a vacation there. Uh, how was your 4th of July? Uh, it was great. Uh, my mom was in town and got to spend some uh, time with her grandson. And so we had a good time. Everyone in my family enjoys the 4th of July except MacGyver, who definitely does not enjoy the 4th of July, our dog. Ah, you got to give him a Thunder shirt. Yeah, we've we've escalated from the Thunder shirt to pharmaceuticals. Mm. Wow, quaaludes. Yeah. I'm sure MacGyver appreciates that, opioids. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he's getting quite a strong enough jokes to appreciate it, but at least it's helping him take the edge off. <laughs> cool. And then uh, you guys just stuck around Chicago then? Uh, we did. I... Uh, Dumb luck more than anything else. One of the nice things about Chicago being so flat is uh, all the windows in my home face west. And so from any room in our house, you can actually see like four commercial firework shows in parallel. So you nice. Yeah. yeah, So you have to go nowhere to enjoy the fireworks. Cool. And any uh, any retail trips to to fill us in on? Have you gone down to see the Amazon bookstore there in Chicago? I've been to the Amazon bookstore a few times, um, and I think we've talked about my visit there. Um, the I have not been to any super exciting new retail. Um, I was in the Bay Area since our last show, and uh, I've talked about the Beta Store before in Seattle, but the original Beta Store was in Palo Alto, so I got a chance to visit that, and it was, you know, frankly, pretty similar to the the Seattle one. And I did finally get to visit a. Um, up in San Francisco, I'm a little ashamed that it's been been so uh, so long, but I finally got to visit a next generation Apple store. Hmm. What was that all about? Um, well, it's been pretty widely covered in the press. Like these are the stores that have like the Expert Grove, and they have uh, 
a lot of the organic elements and they have a big video wall. These are like the, the, uh, Angela Earnhardt, uh, next generation Apple stores. And, um, you know, I I think they are improvements. Um, I don't know that they make a big deal, uh, in of difference in Amazon's business model. Like it seems like they have the same voluminous number of, of people and employees as, the traditional Apple stores, <laughs> like I'd be curious if they ever came out and said like what the it's a much more expensive store to build. I'd be curious if they feel like they like they're they have a better return. Got it. Cool. Well, sounds like you had a good time. Were you able to see uh, any good movies? Uh, I am. No, I did not. We're woefully behind on movies. So uh, uh, Wonder Woman's at the top of the list of ones I haven't seen. I feel like uh, being the parent of a toddler is very detrimental to my movie watching. Absolutely. You're, you're way behind on your movie going. I am. I, I am. I'm jealous of you and uh, uh, your your like premieres. Like you can take your kids to the premieres. Yeah. Yeah. I've already seen Spider-Man, Spookable Me 3. Caught up. Uh, is uh, a, lot of, a lot of talk about how the Spider-Mans are, are much worse than the, the last generation. Is that your take? Uh, I, I liked... I like this one and the Tobey Maguire. I didn't like the ones in the middle. So I guess I'm, I'm counter Spidey. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's some, uh, there's some like critical videos that have gained traction on the internet that compare the Tobey Maguire ones to these current ones. And they, they're, uh, they come down pretty hard on the current ones. Hmm. Wow. Purist. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, so listeners, we've been doing a lot of interviews lately and it's time to mix it up and we're going to bring back one of our most popular segments. Jason and Scott show deep dive. The deep dive this week, we're going to do a deep dive into all things artificial intelligence and how it may impact commerce. In this year's annual letter to shareholders, Jeff Bezos uh, talked a lot about AI and machine learning. So here's, I'm going to read you a little segment from that. These big trends are not that hard to spot. They get talked and written about a lot, but they can be strangely hard for large organizations to embrace. We're in the middle of an obvious one right now, machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's a renaissance, a golden age, Bezos said. We're solving problems with machine learning and AI that were in the realm of science fiction for the last several decades. So uh, I also remember when Bezos kind of dropped in one of those interviews earlier in the year that they had a thousand people working on machine learning. So Jason, this one is squarely in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to kind of take back burner here and, and essentially interview you for, for the audience. So why don't you kick it off and give us your definition of AI and machine learning. A lot of people are using these all over the place. So it's want to hear your your kind of uh, foundational view of, of how we should think about these things. Sure. Uh, I do think the definitions are all over the place um, and that, that creates a lot of confusion. There's sort of a, a technical definition of artificial intelligence, which is not what anyone in our industry means when they talk about artificial intelligence. Cause they like real artificial intelligence is what's called uh, artificial general intelligence or AGI. That's the whole notion of a, computer being able to do all the tasks that a human can and being like, you know, technology being indistinguishable from a human being. And so uh, nothing that we're talking about is anything approaching that. Um, and there's certainly like uh, we that technology is not in the near horizon for us. That's 
you know, at least 10 plus years out. And there are a lot of people that uh, smarter people than me that argue about if and when it'll ever happen. And and if it did, you know, you'd, you could eventually get to that that singularity that uh, Ray Kurzweil likes to talk about. Um, so most of the time in our industry, when they're talking about AI, what they're really talking about is applied AI or what the scientists sometimes call narrow AI or weak AI. And what they mean by that is a machine's ability to do one specific thing uh, as well as a human being can. Um, and so, you know, a, a classic example of, of narrow AI is Siri um, being able to do a, a very specific set of tasks like a human can. Um, and this uh, highlights the real problem with the definition of AI is unless you also define the set of tasks you're talking about, you can't really understand what someone means when they're when they're talking about applied AI, right? So if um, I said like in the 1970s that, hey, we just invented a computer program that can play chess, right? Like the Back then, the, the the narrow task was the ability to follow the rules of chess. It wasn't necessarily good at chess and couldn't beat a good chess player, but just being able to play chess um, was a very classic definition of AI in the 1970s. Um, today, for for any of us to really think of chess as AI, you have to be talking about a chess program that can beat a grandmaster, right? And so the the task that you're talking about changed dramatically from just playing chess to playing chess at a grandmaster level. And so it, it's kind of interesting. The AI is always shifting. When, when you know, recommendation engines for e-commerce first came out, that was state-of-the-art AI. And, you know, when folks like Netflix and Amazon first launched those features, that, that was the, the pinnacle of AI. You know, today, you know, you, you've got a dozen vendors you can pick to plug into your website to do basic product recommendations. And most of us don't think of those as a, a current example of AI, for, uh, for example. So the definitions are constantly shifting. And then we have this problem of there are these three terms that get used kind of interchangeably in our industry. There's artificial intelligence, which is what we've, we've been uh, saying so far. Uh, there's a related discipline called machine learning that gets used interchangeably with artificial intelligence a lot. And then there's this third term, uh, cognitive computing. Um, and the, there are specific definitions of each of those, but when, you know, in the, in the world of e-commerce and vendors, they're all using, misusing them and using them interchangeably. Um, and so it makes it really hard to know what folks are, are even talking about. Cool. So, so that's helpful. Um, I think the thing that, that listeners probably struggle with is how much is reality and how much is hype. So, for example, when we were at Shop Talk uh, you know, just a couple months ago, really, uh, every vendor there well, – first of all, there's just this explosion of new vendors. So we've, we've had a fair number of vendors in our industry, and now there's you know literally a doubling or a tripling. And it seems like every one of the vendors is a redo of an existing vendor, but with a machine like machine learning AI kind of an angle. So, you know, now there's on-site search, um, AdWord bidding machines, product recommendations, uh, upsell engines, email optimizations. That you know, just bazillions of these kinds of things. Um, if I'm a retailer, should part of my 2017 strategy be to just go and figure out all the vendors I have today and find a machine learning version of them. And, and uh, if that's not the answer, then where, where can someone have the biggest impact for, for listeners that are out there with this technology? That's a great question, Scott. We should do a podcast about that. 
Uh, we're right in the middle of it, Jason. Oh, geez. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to stall while I come up with an answer. Um, but in in all seriousness, uh, your hypothetical is uh, I would submit is exactly what you shouldn't do. You you know, there there's no reason to just go look for versions of all your current experiences that are provided by a vendor that's bolted one of the AI words on to their service um, because that that word doesn't make that service any better or worse than it was before. And totally agree with you. You know, vendors are bolting these things on right or left. Like we, um, uh, you know, there's some folks at IBM that take it really seriously, but it's fun to poke fun at them. Uh, they, they have this AI technology or they would call cognitive computing technology that they branded Watson. Um, and some days it feels like they've just added Watson to the front of every product that IBM sells. Um, and so, you know, the, is that a better version than the last version because it has the word Watson in front of it? Like, well, not necessarily. Um, should you pay more money for it because it has the word Watson in front of it? Like, I certainly not. I was looking at the vendor list from IRCE, and there's 22 vendors that have bolted AI onto, you know, their existing product. And I'm getting these, like, calls every day from vendors saying, hey, I know you weren't interested in our product before, but we pivoted and we're now an AI, you know, so-and-so. And we'd, we'd love some of your time to talk about how we should take take our product to all your clients. Um, and, you know, as you sort of Im- implied in the question, uh, that's a bad strategy. Um, no, nothing's going to be better by just buying an AI version of it. Um, going back to our, our uh, friend and number one listener, Jeff Bezos, um, he talks about machine learning as, as sort of a horizontal layer, right? Like, so it's not an endpoint, it's a it's a technology that enables new kinds of experiences. Um, and he has this pretty simple defini- definition that I like to use. He, he says, like, over the past decades, computers have broadly automated tasks that programmers could describe with clear rules and algorithms. Um, and what modern machine learning does is allow us to do the same for tasks where describing the rules is much harder, right? So playing chess is a you know relatively defined set of rules, and you, you could write a computer program that followed those rules. But what machine learning lets you do um, is make a program that can play chess really well, even though the programmer themselves might not be able to write a set of best practices for actually playing chess. Um, and so what, what we're really looking for are specific use cases in commerce uh, that are made possible or made dramatically better by adding this horizontal layer, by adding this ability to to do fuzzy stuff that was hard to write rules for um, in the past. And so I, what I would say is rather than looking for labels like AI, you ought to be thinking about specific use cases uh, that are made much better or enabled for the first time by underlying AI technologies and decide whether any of those use cases are particularly helpful for you. Okay. Uh, so that's helpful. What, what are some, what are some examples of where retailers can use this technology and, and you know, maybe give folks a little bit of framework for helping them think about this so that they can kind of, you know, formulate a plan and, and figure out how to start sampling some of these things. Yeah. So, so let's do exactly that. Let's jump into some specifics. And I, I like to, kind of divide the the experiences into three buckets. Uh, the first bucket I call the insights generation bucket, and that's all of the sort of um, analytics, data processing type things you can do. And, and I'll, I'll go into some examples in just a second. 
the second buzz bucket is what I'll call business acceleration. It's uh, saving time or money or uh, reducing uh, complexity from, from various business processes. Um, and the third bucket is customer engagement. It's, it's new customer experiences that you couldn't do before uh, that, that customers appreciate and, and make you a, a better merchant or, or a better solution for those customers. So uh, let's start talking about some of the, the specific commerce use cases that might fit in each one of those buckets. Um, so the, the first one I like to talk about in the insights bucket is basic web analytics. So we've, we've had web analytics for a long time, and you know, they generally come with canned reports um, and dashboards, and you can make your own custom reports. Um, but all of the traditional analytics require you knowing the smart question to ask and then the the um, analytics engine being able to show you go find the answer to that question you asked and so you know again you could you could clearly define rules for what was in that dashboard and what wasn't um, what machine learning lets you do to analytics is uh, find insights that you weren't smart enough to ask the question for um, and so this is already being built into a lot of the traditional analytics products. So there's now a beta feature in Google Analytics um, called Google Automated Insights. And essentially, uh, instead of you having to define a segment and ask a smart question like, how do mobile users convert versus desktop users? Or how do first-time visitors convert versus repeat visitors? Or things like that. Um, Google will use machine learning to evaluate all your data and suggest segments that that are particularly interesting or highlight um, some unique opportunities for you. So it's the the analytics engine becoming smart enough to ask the uh, the smart questions that that we aren't smart enough to ask um, for the first time. And that's an example to me of something that's pretty exciting in the machine learning space that makes commerce operators much better. Uh, so another one um, that you and I were talking about earlier uh, is this notion of discovering correlations outside of web analytics, right? So there's there's a lot of behaviors in commerce um, that that uh, have have correlations, or there's urban legends that that supposedly things correlate um, that might affect how you run your business. So like sort of the 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 famous example in e-commerce is weather um, and, you know, the type of products you should offer when it's raining versus it's sunny. And, of course, all retailers complain about whatever the weather is and claim that that was the reason that their sales were off. Um, and so it's interesting to know what the correlation, the real correlation between weather and sales are. Um, the, the famous not obvious correlation that turns out to be an urban myth is uh, – that beer sales correlate very closely to diaper sales and you go, well, gosh, what do those two have in common? And it's, it's, you know, in, in theory, it was that the, the dad got sent to the store to get, get a new box of diapers. And he also of course grabbed a six pack of beer. Um, and you mentioned you were using some interesting uh, correlation uh, tools at Spiffy. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, my latest company does on-demand car wash and detailing and, you know, small companies still getting off the ground essentially. And, 
so one of our folks was playing around with the Amazon machine learning. And, and the point of the story really is that some of this stuff feels like you have to be a multi-billion dollar company to play with it. But the we found the Amazon stuff is really approachable. We'll put a link in the show notes to, to kind of this model that we used. And essentially what you do is you can upload a transactional database. So think about a really long spreadsheet or, or you know, a, a spreadsheet with a bunch of transactional data. And on every row, you can put in there what you know about that transaction. So obvious things like uh, the AOV, the SKU, that kind of stuff. Uh, in, in our world of car washing, we know the vehicle, um, we know the location, the zip code, and some of those kinds of things. So, you know, what it spit out what, that was really interesting, and we also know the weather. Um, so we were just doing this to really kind of play around with the weather part of it. But what was interesting is it said you're inversely correlated to the weather, uh, which is the first insight it offered, which was the obvious one we were looking for. So when it's raining, no one wants their car washed. But then the next thing it did is it said your model customer uh, drives an American SUV, probably a Yukon. Uh, and you know these are the top three zip codes that are correlated to your sales in, in sunny, warm weather. We were like, wow, that was that, you know, those are things we had never even really kind of thought that you could figure out, but it, it, you know, what, what it does is it, it can kind of look at that data and sniff out these correlations that, that a human just can't process. So, um, and all that is done through a pretty simple UI where you can upload a spreadsheet. So a lot of this stuff feels like it's pretty science fictiony when you hear about it, but that was an example that I wanted to share with listeners where we were able to get some pretty interesting insights just by, by using a, a web based interface on, you know, not even APIs with the Amazon web web stuff. Very cool. And so that's a, that's a, an actual business user versus a data scientist in that case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. So those are, those are great examples. Uh, other common ones that we run into in, in commerce are around like targeting and best audiences. Um, so, you know, again, we have, you have a lot of data about all the people that have bought from you in the past. Um, who, you know, what are the look likes that you should be, uh, seek, you know, buying from Facebook or, or other ad sources that are potentially most valuable to you, um, you know, and of all the marketing activities that you could be doing for your business, which one is going to give you the, the best return for the next dollar of, of marketing spend you have? So, um, you know, we're seeing these, these machine learning based analytics tools get really good at defining target audiences and helping to figure out next best dollar. Um, sort of related to that are uh, the ability to do attribution and ROI models. So, you know, traditionally in, in e-commerce, we all use this model called the last click attribution, which is whatever the last thing the guy did before they bought something, that's the activity that got 100% of the credit for the sale. That's kind of the, the default model in most of the analytics tools still, and too many people use it. Um, and it's completely wrongheaded. Um, you know, that's sort of like saying, like, what's the most valuable thing in my store? Well, it's the cash register because everyone uses the cash register right before they buy something. Um, the So there are all these other attribution models that give partial credit, fractional credit to all the different marketing activities that led up to a purchase. And the problem has always been, well, which model, you know, is most accurate for my business? And you had to pick a model um, and you really didn't know if you'd pick the right model or not. So now with machine learning, uh, the, the program kind of analyzes your data and picks the best attribution model for you. And so, you know, for the first time, uh, to your point, business users using kind of web-based analytics tools 
can start getting these really sophisticated ROI calculations and customer lifetime value calculations without having to be a data scientist that could smartly pick the right attribution model. Um, and then I guess the other area of insight generation that's getting a lot of traction right now uh, is this whole notion of sentiment analysis or, or more specifically for commerce, uh, we'll call it social listening, right? And so that's this, this notion that, man, you have this fire hose of data of people talking about you on Twitter and Facebook and WeChat. Um, and, you know, should I, what should I be doing to enhance my reputation? Are people talking favorable, favorably about me? Are they speaking negatively about me? Which tweet should I flag for, for uh, customer service follow-up? Um, in the old world where you just had to have an army of people read all these things to make decisions on all of it, it, it for most companies, it, uh, the volume was such that it just didn't scale and didn't make sense. Um, but now with machine learning, uh, you can actually process the entire fire hose of social media and do a pretty good job of categorizing all of the the dialogue about your brand or product or business uh you know into actionable buckets that tell you you know whether whether audiences are looking at you favorably or negatively whether they like your new products or don't like your new products and more specifically uh what what specific uh uh comments in social media you should be taking action on or responding to to try to improve your your reputation and customer service. I assume you're doing all that at Spiffy, Scott? Uh, we're just playing around with some correlations at this point. Nice. <laughs> uh, well, since seen some of the sentiment stuff. Some of the Wall Street guys are like reading the Twitter fire hose to try to get sentiments on stocks and things. It's, you know, I'm not sure that use case, but it is pretty interesting. Yeah, well, I know, you know, one sort of interesting one is the uh, – retailers are starting to report less and less data to the analysts, which I know irritates the analysts to no end. And so they're looking for all sorts of new tools um, to sort of get a read on like what, what a retailer's quarterly financial performance will be. And, and uh, uh, many of those are these machine learning tools. In some cases it's taking pictures of parking lots in malls with drones and uh, using those to to evaluate like whether traffic is up or down in the mall and all so, or sorts of interesting things like that. Very cool. So uh, that's insight generation. Then the second bucket you talked about was business acceleration. What are some examples that you've seen there? Yeah. Well, so uh, the the classic one that's that's probably the the highest ROI today that you see used the most by uh, slightly more sophisticated operators is. Uh, the whole machine learning for inventory management and forecasting. So, you know, kind of taking the the buying uh, responsibility like out of the hands of the merchant prints and, and, you know, having them just guess how many of a garment you should make um, or how many you send to each store um, and instead uh, using the data to sort of accurately tell you uh, what your inventory levels should be, and and you know to more accurately forecast your sales. And so there's a whole host of of retail and e-commerce tools that are focused on using machine learning for inventory management and forecasting. Um, one that I like that is not quite here yet. Uh, there's some great demos, and uh, a number of retailers are testing it. Uh, uh, Target I know is testing it. Um, is uh, what we call merchandising compliance. So uh, if you think about a brick-and-mortar store, a lot of the displays in that store are paid for by a brand. So 
Procter & Gamble might buy an end cap for Tide. And so the Tide is supposed to not just be on the shelf, but be on the end of the shelf. And it's supposed to get some special signage. And Procter & Gamble probably paid a lot of money for that end cap um, to, to Walmart or Target or whomever. Um, and so in the old days, when you, when you paid that money, uh, you would then hire a bunch of college students or soccer moms to go visit every store and take a picture of it um, and send these report cards back to Procter & Gamble to say whether every individual Target store complied with that merchandising program or not. Because you're paying a lot of money for it, and what you find is in a significant number of stores, uh, they didn't put, they didn't execute the end cap, or they didn't put the signage out. Uh, there used to be a stat that like half of the custom printed signage that gets sent to these stores, the merchandising, the temporary uh, point of purchase displays, never got put out on the shelf, and so all the brands had to spend a fortune sending these armies of people out to the stores to measure compliance. And what we're seeing now is you can have a Roomba, like some kind of robot that roams the, the floors of the store with cameras and takes pictures and uses computer vision uh, to, to match those, those pictures against uh, the, plan the, the planograms, the, the intended uh, store layouts. And you can report on you know, which stores did or didn't comply with those displays and you can take corrective action more quickly and you can save all that money of the brands having to spend, send people out to the stores to measure it. And then you can even use those pictures to tell you when, for example, all of a particular uh, skew of Tide is out of stock and not on the shelf because it, it might be in the, in the back room um, and not on the shelf. And obviously in that out of stock situation, you're not selling any Tide. So so using computer vision for merchandising compliance, um, you know, it, it's still early days, but there, there's a ton of money and uh, friction to be saved by doing that. And um, one of the experiences we'll talk about next, Amazon Go, is uh, that's sort of one of the underlying capabilities of Amazon Go. And then Amazon Go extends that, that uh, capability by also letting you check out, right? So, so the Amazon Go store that we've talked about uses cameras to take pictures of the shelves and know what products are on the shelf, but it's also using cameras to follow the shoppers and know what shoppers are holding which products so that it can charge them for those products when they walk out of the store. So I, I would characterize Amazon Go as a, um, a, you know, a potential future use case of artificial intelligence for retail. Very cool. And then um, one of my favorite examples is the Stitch Fix guys. Um, they talk a lot about private label, and one of the reasons they came up with private label was they would they would send out all these products, and people wouldn't buy them, but they would say, I liked the strap on this, the design of that, uh, and then they were able to synthesize all that feedback, and essentially the machine learning would say, you need to produce this garment um, for this audience of people. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great use case, is sort of using machine learning for product selection and product design, right? So going back to the kind of old Merchant Prince model, you know, the Mickey Drexlers of the world would decide what, what you know, uh, the design of the shirt is that was in Gap or J. Crew, um, And, you know, it, it was as much art as it was science. And, you know, very often, you know, they would make good, good selections and they'd sell a lot and they'd make a lot of money. Uh, but occasionally they would design something that the market didn't want and they'd 
have a ton of it in stock and lose a fortune. So what folks like Stitch Fix are doing is saying, hey, let's not have merchants. Let's use the data to tell us what products to to offer to our customers. And eventually, not just what products to buy and offer to our customers, let's use the data to decide what products to design for our customers and offer them. And so in Stitch Fit's particular case, they have like 60 attributes for every garment. So things you wouldn't think of, but like how many inches is the top button from the collar? Um, what's the ratio of the waist to the chest in the, in the size six? What, uh, you know, what, what kind of cuffs does it have? What kind of pleats does it have? Um, they're, they're defining each garment at a much more granular level of attributes. And then they're using machine learnings to say, what are the combination of those attributes in a women's blouse that sell the best to which of our customers? And so, you know, originally they used that to decide which which pro- third party products to carry, but but more and more they're sa- they're using those attributes to define what products they should manufacture themselves and offer to their customers. So it's really replacing the merchant um, with with the data. And and so instead of having a a buyer or a or a, a merchant, you you have a analyst. Yeah, and then the this is a good time to kind of inject the. The thing that gets pretty interesting around this is when you when you think about business models, you know, one of the the favorite business models of the last ten years is network effects. So the classic example is a marketplace like an eBay, where uh, or a more modern would be maybe an Uber, where you have supply and demand, and more supply brings more demand, and this flywheel effect happens. Uh, so more drivers brings more riders, more riders brings more drivers, or more sellers bring more buyers, etc. I think I think when you start to think a lot about this machine learning and AI, and you use that Stitch Fix example, the the reason they're able to do that is because they have all this great product data. So you know, data becomes almost the next generation network effect. So it's almost like this data network effect where the more data a company can get about consumer behaviors, preferences, and those kinds of things, they're going to have this edge that no one else has. And um, you know, another kind of call to action, I usually talk about with retailers or especially brands is this is why you need that connection with the customer because imagine you're a brand that's not selling direct. All that data is out of your hands right now. And there will be a day when you will be at a severe strategic disadvantage for developing products. I think curious how you feel about this. uh, If you don't have that direct connection to consumers and, you know, also not only is the data you know, important, but you need to start flexing your muscles around these things and really understanding how to apply some of these techniques to that data. Absolutely. And and so I, I think you're exactly right. With most of the current state-of-the-art machine learning models, um, the big competitive advantage is having the data set to train the model. And so the more customer interactions you have, the more data you have, the better model you'll be and the better you'll able you'll be able to serve more customers. And to your point, you, the better your flywheel will be, right? Um, and and so uh, that's that's true for a lot of these these different cases, and specifically with the manufacturer versus retailer, um, it's once this data becomes key, uh, you start thinking about whoever owns that relationship with the customer has access to a way more valuable asset. So, like one of the examples I always like to use is the tire industry, and you think about the the tire manufacturers of the world for the most part. They have no idea what kind of vehicle in what zip codes um, their their tires get installed on, and they don't know how the tire the, the customers use those tires, and they have no idea, for example, how long those tires last on specific vehicles in specific geographies. 
Um, and so they know they know very few attributes about their tire once it leaves the factory. But a good retailer that installs those tires on the car can start collecting all these extra attributes. How many miles are on the car? What kind of car is it? Um, the, uh, how frequently do they change their brake pads? What zip code do they uh, that is, does the car uh, live in? And all those sorts of things. And that retailer can start using those attributes of that data to start doing things like much more accurately predicting which tire will work best for which customer on which vehicle in which geography. Um, and so there are all sorts of you know interesting things that come into play there. And so if you're that that product manufacturer, tire manufacturer, whatever, like one of one of your big uh, strategic challenges right now is to figure out how um, to to start developing that relationship directly with the customer, so you can be capturing that data. Um, in the business acceleration, and I want to talk about that a little bit more in some of the customer engagement things, but there are a couple other business acceleration ones that we should probably just touch on. Um, one that's getting used a lot right now is, uh, the, the idea of tagging or, um, evaluating text. So tons of brands have a lot of text about their products that they, someone typed into a super old database that they use to print the packaging that goes in the store, um, but, but per our conversation about attributes earlier, that wasn't structured data. Like someone wasn't smart enough to say, uh, we should have a field for whether all these snacks are kosher or not. And we should have a field to say whether all these snacks are gluten-free or not, right? Like kosher and gluten-free might've just appeared in a text description somewhere. And so, um, there are tons of product manufacturers that have, piles of this unstructured data that isn't very useful for machine learning. It isn't very useful for search and filtering and all these use cases that are super common in e-commerce. And so, um, you know, you either have to pay a bunch of copywriters to read all your unstructured text and cut and paste it into fields, or you can start using these machine learning models to automatically tag your data and you know, turn unstructured data into valuable attributes. And one of the most common one is pictures, right? So you imagine that you're in a product category that's heavily uploaded to Pinterest or Instagram. Um, you don't know very much about those pictures. Which which skew of yours is in that picture? Is it being portrayed with a man or a woman? Uh, is it being portrayed at a beach or at a, a ski chalet? And all these different things that would be interesting to help you decide when to use that image. Um, the machine learning can tag all of those images and make them much more valuable in, in all of your commerce experiences. Very cool. So we're starting to see that a lot. Uh, a common one that's being used right now is almost all of the latest fraud engines um, are, are using machine learning. So this is a classic example where, you know, fraud used to be a set of static rules. So you would, you would write rules. If, People try to shop our site in the U.S. from Nigeria. We won't let them shop. And if they try to ship the product to a hotel, we, we won't let them buy that. Um, and with machine learning, we can be much smarter about what attributes trigger a secondary screen for fraud. Um, and what that does is it gives you way less false positives. So you're able to sell a lot more goods to a lot more people and not offend them by by treating them like they're a prospective criminal when they've done nothing wrong. And so the, the fraud models are both getting much better at catching fraud, but equally important, uh, they're getting far fewer false positives as a result of using 
this machine learning instead of a set of hard and fast rules. Um, one of the business accelerations that, that Amazon has particularly made famous is the whole field of price optimization. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we talk a lot on the show about Amazon changing 2.5 million prices a day. Um, and their, their, their approach is much more sophisticated than just being the lowest price on everything, right? Like they're, they're a strategic low price provider. Um, and, you know, more and more that it's not possible to, to just write a set of rules about what your pricing for every product ought to be. And so uh, you're starting to see retailers turn over the keys to their pricing models to these sophisticated machine learning um, systems that optimize price and optimize promotions and offers for individual customers. And, you know, to your earlier network effect point, um, those models are most powerful when you're, you know, at the high end of the volume and you have a ton of transactions and a ton of SKUs uh, to, to apply those models against. Um, so that And as a reminder, we had a guest, Andrea, who was on, and uh, Andrea Lay, and she was talking about how uh, a lot of times even a vendor is negotiating with a robot on the other side. And, you know, so there's not only are they optimizing the price the consumer sees, but they're, you know, that's feeding into some engine that's then kind of coming back to the vendor and saying, you need to price the product at this. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I think Amazon is kind of the gold standard in in commerce for that. And so you're seeing a lot of other, re- like when you, ha- to your point, when you had to have a thousand um, data scientists to write your own pricing algorithm, you know, that that was a huge advantage to the people at the top of the ecosystem like Amazon. Um, but today, you know, it is easier to buy an off-the-shelf model um, that you just have to have enough data to feed. So there's there's vendors out there like Boomerang, um, which are every bit as sophisticated as Amazon's pricing engine. But, you know, it's available to much smaller operators um, you know, as long as they're, they they have enough data to, to put into the model. And so that's super interesting. Um, at the moment, the big challenge you have is how do brick and mortar retailers do that sort of pr- real time price optimization? Like it's pretty easy to change the price, you know, from second to second on Amazon. It's much harder when there's a, a paper price tag next to that product um, and it's on a shelf in a store. Um, so that's that's an interesting we're gonna, one we're going to continue to see play out. Um, another one that I think Amazon is particularly great at is this whole notion of logistics optimization. Um, so once you're bigger than a single warehouse, you start getting, you know, uh, all these issues about what's the optimum amount of inventory to have in each warehouse and where should you put all that product where it's going to be most efficient to get to most of your customers. And if you're wrong um, about that that whole uh, supply chain um, planning uh, you can cost yourself a fortune moving products around or shipping products inefficiently to customers. And so using machine learning to optimize uh, how many SKUs and which SKUs go into each warehouse is super important. And, you know, when you're Amazon and you have, what do they have now, Scott, 112 fulfillment centers, something like that? Yep, thereabouts. Yep. Um, you know, that that becomes a, a a critical challenge. And Amazon's probably the only one that has the problem at that scale. And they're also probably the only ones that have the solution um, at that scale. Um, and then I guess the, the last business acceleration one that, you know, I don't think we're going to see immediately, but gets talked about a lot is like, obviously all the technology to get that drone um, to, to your house to deliver the goods 
is a great example of of something you can only do with artificial intelligence. So if, if we ever see drone delivery um, be economical for certain customers, like you know that that will be exclusively enabled by by artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and I would remind listeners, whenever I say drone, people always imagine these super expensive uh, flying things. Um, we are also starting to see a lot of wheel-based drones. And so there's some interesting pilots going on in, in San Francisco and in uh, um, uh, Maryland right now with, with uh, drones that are sort of autonomous vehicles that drive on sidewalks and deliver things like pizza and stuff. So I'm excited about uh, uh, renting a house in one of those markets and get a drone pizza delivery. <laughs> cool. So there's a lot in the business acceleration. And, and to kind of recap, that sounds more like cost savings. Uh, um, I guess there's some that impacts the customer experience. But yeah. the, the next bucket is where you probably would – customers are going to feel it the most, which is what you're calling customer engagement. Exactly. And this is the stuff that, that – uh, you know, tends to be the most sexy. It's the most visible to customers. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of things in this category that have their own buzz and, and in their own own spot in the hype cycle at the moment. Um, so one that we talk about a lot are natural language assistants. Um, and so that's, you know, Siri, Cortana, um, Echo, uh, Google Home, all, all of those sorts of things. And, you know, if you if you think about them, they're, they're actually an amalgamation of multiple AI technologies, right? Like, so there's this, this notion of being able to convert speech into data. Um, and so they're natural language processing. Um, and then there's the notion of being able to, to act on those, those sentences and give proper responses. And so that's the notion of virtual assistance, right? And so you, you have a lot of these things that are like you speak to, like Siri, um, you have a lot of virtual agents that you type to, like chatbots on Facebook and uh, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's sort of an explosion between those two categories of the voice assistants and the virtual assistants in, in e-commerce at the moment. Cool. Have you tried any of the, the uh, virtual agents yet, Scott? you think any of them are ready for prime time? Nah, the ones I've tried are pretty cheesy and they're if you stay with them they're pretty unsatisfying they can't answer most of your questions until they kick over to a human then once the human pops in it's better yeah so i'm not i'm not believing those are quite there yet no i and so it is funny because what what we're seeing is customers definitely want customer service via chat and via messenger and so it's a a mistake to say, oh my gosh, the chatbots are kind of not ready for prime time, and so let's just hire more phone reps and do everything via phone. Because we're we're seeing strong indications that customers are less tolerant to sit on a hold line and uh, do something asynchronous like like uh, talk to someone on the phone. Um, but at the same time, you're right; like the virtual agents really aren't cutting it yet at the moment. And so, what where the sweet spot is are are live humans at the other end of those those chat and SMS strings. And I guess the, the best virtual agents I've seen are kind of maybe just one layer deep and they, they, they answer some of the, the highest velocity questions and, and they sort of act as a filter to make those, those live agents more efficient by not having them have to answer the same question over and over again. Yeah. And they're smart enough to know when to get out of the way. They kind of say, Hey, did you 
are you looking to track a package? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me route you to a human. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and once they get annoying, they're like, you know, well, they kind of walk you through, a, a, you know, some kind of knowledge base. Yeah. Relentlessly. The, the best ones are seamless. Right. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and unfortunately, like too many of them, you know, keep fighting to try to keep you in the virtual realm. And, you know, at some point you, you stop asking honest questions and you're just trying to figure out how to, how to bypass it. Um, so another sort of adjacent thing that we're starting to see more of in customer engagement is this whole notion of, of discovery and guided selling. Um, and so one of the, the ones that got the most buzz here is uh, North Face used a Watson implementation to, to have sort of a guided selling tool for jackets. Um, uh, 800 Flowers has a guided selling experience for, for gift giving. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I have similar feelings to the guided selling tools at the moment that you, you had to the virtual agents. I think the idea of them is very interesting. And I, I certainly agree we need to get way better at, uh, at discovery and helping people find new products. Um, but a lot of the guided selling tools I've seen at the moment just feel too linear and scripted. And I'm not sure that they're, they're yet, uh, recommending products a heck of a lot better than, than, you know, sort of a structured set of rules used to last year. Yep. Agree. Um, so the, the next one in customer engagement is one, and I may have even, I'll have to go back. This may have been one of my predictions. Uh, so I'm going to hype it again in the hopes that it helps my, my annual prediction come true. Um, one of the cool technologies in artificial intelligence is computer vision, um, and being able to, to process images and more and more often process video um, to get insights out of out of that image data. And so uh, one of the, the most common use cases for that is tagging images that we talked about in business acceleration. But the other way more sexy one is visual search. Um, so that's Amazon Firefly being able to take a picture of a product um, and then order it. Or, you know, even a cooler use case is... Uh, via an app like CamFind, being able to take a picture of the woman at the table next to you with a cool handbag and find that handbag for sale or those shoes. And it, that's kind of the whole notion of this uh, see-it-buy-it kind of experience. Yeah. isn't um, I've seen a lot of people say Pinterest is probably one of the better ones out there. Are, do you know what they're using under the hood for that? Is it is it some machine learning kind of? Exactly. And they rolled it out. That's Impressive. Pinterest Lens. They rolled that out relatively recent. Like, so it's probably only about three months old at this point, if memory serves. Um, and that's a great example. Um, it's not product specific yet. So it's, it, it helps you find similar uh, images to the image you're looking at. There are some more sort of commerce ones. I mentioned CamFind is one company. We'll talk about a couple other visual search companies um, at the end of the podcast, but the, uh, the, the whole field of visual search, I would just tell people is getting phenomenally better. And so for years, we talked about natural language getting, uh, twice as good every year. Um, and last year, the natural language, uh, interfaces essentially surpassed human comprehension. So the, the computers can now more accurately understand spoken words than an average human being. Um, and that's, you know, forgetting the fact that the computers can also understand people in a bunch of other languages. And the same sort of evolution is happening in visual search. 
Uh, there's a an academic contest for visual search engines that uh, several of the universities, including Stanford, put on every year. And the winning visual search engine is twice as good every year as the year before. And so the quality of visual search is just doubling every year. So if you look at some of the best use cases right now, they're already pretty impressive. And you go, oh, man, this is already useful today. And if you think about the fact that they're getting twice as good every year, um, you know, we're very close to visual search being a super powerful tool. And that's going to eliminate a lot of the friction we see in stores where people try to get you to use NFC tags or scan QR codes or do things like that. Like, imagine a future when you just hold your phone up to the aisle in a store and the phone sees every product on that aisle and it visually recognizes all of them. And maybe it even reads the price tag off the shelf for each one of them. And it could, you know, instantly highlight for you what the good deals are in that store and what what you'd be better off buying from an e-commerce site at home. Um, and then one thing that's interesting about this is part of the renaissance on the visual side is uh, it's tied to video games. So, you know, as as people's demands for video games have gotten higher, the 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 game processors that, that are these high end floating point machines have gotten more sophisticated. And it ends up that's a great platform for vision and 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 even cognitive, I think. But I, I hear it more used for the vision stuff. Um, so what's interesting is now as part of like AWS, Amazon's leasing out, you can actually lease out GPUs, which are game processing units. Uh, and, uh, as the cost of those has come down, it's, it's made this video stuff get even smarter. So there's a hardware part to this. That's pretty neat. So this stuff is, you know, not only is the machine getting smarter because the amount of data is going up, but there's also Moore's law on the back end helping it as well. Absolutely. And the, the kind of math that all of these machine learning models use, um, is the kind of math that, that I think technically they're graphics processing units, not game processing, but Sorry. um, uh, game. yeah, but they're primary. You were right. They were invented for games for sure. And our friends at NVIDIA, like being a prime example, um, the, the, that, the kind of math that those chips are good at is the kind of math that machine learning uses. And so that is one of the gating factors for machine learning getting better is having access to big, server farms of these GPUs. And, and to your point, all the big vendors of, of uh, cloud computing, you know, that's the new battleground is, you know, not, not CPUs and cores, but, but GPUs. Um, and what's that, that's really enabled the renaissance in machine learning that these academics can now rent like these, these amazing supercomputers for short periods of time to, to, you know, run their experiments and refine their models. Um, another one that, that's super common, and this is like a classic example of making an existing technology better as opposed to enabling a new capability, like visual search is enabling a new capability, but the, obviously a core function of every e-commerce engine is its search function. And, um, the, the search has gone incrementally better every year, but it's largely gotten better because we put better data into the search. So we put more attributes into the search. Um, the, the underlying technology for deciding which product is most relevant to you, which user hasn't changed a heck of a lot um, in the last five or 10 years. And machine learning is now like the, the first big incremental improvement to, to search in a long time. And the way to think about this is uh, the results of search that are most relevant to you based on all your past purchases and behavior are probably different than the search results that are most relevant to me. 
Um, and so uh, using machine learning, they can say, hey, what's every search result I've given to every customer um, and which ones of the search results had successful purchase experiences in the ends and which ones didn't? And what did the customers look like that had those successful purchase results? Um, and now, you know, we can personalize search much more to each user um, based on everything we know about them and make search much more uh, effective and relevant than it's ever been before. Very cool. Um, but that's a classic one. We've always had search engines. Now every search vendor is saying their their search engine is machine learning based. Um, and that really, you know, you can't just look at that label and say, oh, that's the new search engine to get. Like what you really need to do is test the search engine and make sure it's going to work uh, better for your audience and with your your product catalog. Um, and that that goes double for this next category, recommendation engines. Um, so, you know, we kind of take recommendation engines for granted at this point. Like there are so many out there and, and, you know, for a while there's been kind of parody of these, these recommendation engines. Um, but, but, you know, it don't lose sight of, of how powerful these things are. Um, you know, a few years ago we saw some data that 75% of all the views on Netflix were driven by product recommendations. And, uh, this is pretty old now, but back in 2013, um, there was a leak that 35% of all the revenue from Amazon came from the those product recommendation tiles. And I believe the the product recommendation tiles in Amazon emails were even higher converting than the ones on the product detail pages. And so recommendations are super important. And of course, using machine learning, you uh, it should be no surprise to our listeners at this point, you can make recommendations much more personalized and effective for each customer than the sort of static rule-based recommendation engines that are, that are you know, kind of the norm that are out there now. Um, so the, I'm going to go a little faster because I, I know we're going to come up on time here pretty quick. Uh, a next category that's super interesting in the apparel business returns are, are a crushing cost. Um, and most of the returns are a result of fitment issues. So something wasn't the size you expected or didn't fit the way you wanted. And so we're starting to see machine learning get used uh, for uh, to solve fitment problems. So in the old world, Zappos taught everyone to buy two sizes of shoes. That guaranteed one was coming back and that was super expensive. So now what you want to do is use data about all the attributes uh, to to accurately recommend the size and maybe even remind a customer that they bought another size before and it fit better and the, or they bought this size uh, before and had to return it um, to help people get the right size the first time and uh, avoid uh, uh, miss buying stuff. You're also seeing this get tied in with visual search where you're actually using the camera to help measure the size of the customer and then match that to fitment data to help them buy the right stuff. So lots of stuff uh, in machine learning happening around fitment and return avoidance. Um, the whole general field of personalization, this is really hard to shop for right now because every vendor is hyping all kinds of new new artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities, and it's really hard to separate the hype from the reality with all those products. But it, it certainly is true that machine learning um, generates more personalized experiences. And so there's, uh, you know, tons and tons of new vendors out there in that space. Um, you know, folks that are still in loyalty programs and retention programs, uh, those can be dramatically improved by machine learning. So we're starting to see the first generation of machine learning based loyalty programs. Um, and that's kind of the, the main use cases that we talk about right now in, in customer engagement. Got it. Okay. So to summarize, we've got three 
buckets insight generation. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, I think of that as like next generation analytics. So, so analytics that not just splats data at you, but comes up with insights, uh, business acceleration. And, and that was things that, that help you save money, um, improve your forecasting pricing and even proc design, uh, and then customer engagement, which are the more forward front office things that are going to improve the, the user experience, learn more about your customers and give them a better experience. Uh, if people are interested in this, so so first of all, maybe lay out a little roadmap. So so a listener is a omni-channel retailer. They've um, you know they're uh, they got a lot going on in their world right now. Uh, where does this fall into prioritization, and and where are some places they can nibble? And then uh, where do you recommend they go for more information? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of what what your focus should be, like my, you know my high level advice is. Ignore the AI labels. Don't go look for an AI product, but instead look at the list that we just gave you, and we'll put it in the show notes, and say, which of those things do we feel like we're most efficient at and we're leaving the most money on the table? Like, are, are you know, we're we not making good decisions about who our audiences are and, and how we should target our advertising? Are we not making good decisions about our pricing or we're paying too much for fraud? Um, or are we, you know, not doing a good enough job of helping customers discover the right products and add add uh, more carts to their uh, more more SKUs to their cart, um, and you know, are returns too high? Those sorts of things. And so, focus on your biggest pain points, and then say, all right, you know, what solutions out there are are using machine learning technologies to best address that pain point? So that would be my sort of high level advice. And then, in terms of specific vendors. Um, if you're going to build your own solution, um, there, there's sort of a four horse race for the underlying technologies for all of these machine learning capabilities. And as you sort of alluded to in your experience at Spiffy, um, they, none of these vendors require you to be data scientists anymore. So they all are like pretty easy tools. You probably still have to be a programmer because these are mostly APIs that you rent, but it's really a four horse race. It's for the big vendors all have these big stacks of AI capabilities that you can rent by the drink, and they're they're really inexpensive, and you you add them to your own product. So if you're going to hire your own programmer to develop any of these experiences, um, the the first one is uh, IBM with their Watson technology, and we'll put links to all four of these these platforms in the show notes. Um, one that people don't necessarily think of, but is a, a hugely competitive in this space, is Google. And they, they have a division called Google Cloud uh, uh, Platform Services, um, and they, they have a bunch of APIs for machine learning. They actually invented one of the underlying machine learning models called TensorFlow, and they've open-sourced it. So they, they have a lot of great TensorFlow solutions on uh, GCP, but uh, you'll also find other vendors now offering TensorFlow because it's become so popular um, Microsoft has a complete set of cognitive APIs under the, their Azure services. Um, and then, as you mentioned, um, Amazon has a complete set of AI capabilities uh, that are part of AWS. And um, they're, you know, they're all kind of analogous. Like You'll find basically the same set of APIs from all of them. You'll find a, a computer vision library. You'll find a sentiment library. You'll find a natural language processing library, a text-to-speech library. You'll find all this these Legos of machine learning capabilities that you snap together yourself. 
Um, one that's kind of fun that I will highlight specifically for Amazon is one of their Legos is called uh, Destiny, and it's spelled uh, goofy. It's D-S-S-T-N-E. And that's the actual product recommendation engine from the Amazon website that they added to AWS last year. So you you can actually use um, the very uh, uh, system that Amazon's using. And we, we mentioned this network effect. Um, it's a huge advantage to be able to get a recommendation engine that's trained by Amazon already because um, you're benefiting from their network effect. Um, so that that's pretty interesting. Um, and then I would highlight that there's some more niche vendors. There are vendors that, as opposed to giving you a low-level API, have sort of crafted complete machine language capabilities um, specific for commerce vendors. And so, again, I'll put them in the show notes. Um, but six that come up a lot, there's a, a company called Twiggle uh, that has one of these uh, uh, machine language-based search engines that we talked about in the, the customer experience portion uh, there's a company called Sentient.ai uh, that has a really powerful visual search capability. They also have some pretty interesting personalization and recommendation engines. There's a company called Clarify um, that that has visual search, including video, which is super interesting if you're someone that produces a lot of content on YouTube. Um, the uh, We mentioned the, the robots that take pictures of the shelves. So that's a company called Simbi Robotics, and they have the tally robot that um target is testing there's another com- company at uh, at a stanford called focal systems that have the computer vision library for doing inventory uh and then luminoso is one of the companies that has a specific uh, machine language based analytics platform for commerce and so uh there's there's many many more vendors out there but those are sort of six interesting ones to look at to to get you started yeah so so it seems like um I don't mean to hang up on this, but uh, when when I was an e-commerce person, uh, just kind of thinking about our listeners here, and I used to buy a solution. Um, you know, you would look at kind of feature benefit, kind of a analysis and cost and all that kind of stuff. It seems like machine learning and some of these things add this like other dimension that's really important, which is data. So, so as you look at these solutions, um, you know, it's really important to understand. Is this going to operate just on my data? Is is my data going to be enough to really get a big get a big enough bang for the buck? Because uh, I think what we're going to see is new models where you're sharing data with other people on a platform, um, but then you also need to be pretty cognizant about that because this is really important intellectual property you have. And once it gets into these platforms and is learned, even when you leave and take your data, the learnings stay. Uh, so it's a really interesting kind of a way to think about things. You, you kind of you know, as a user of a vendor, you want a lot of access to data, but then you almost don't want your data to kind of be in there in the system to, you know, I'll, I'll use an example. Let's say you're, I don't know, a, a seller of electronics. You train the system on, on you know, whatever recommendation of electronics. Now you switch vendors. Well, that now competitor switches there. Uh, you start using that. Now they've, they've got a solution that's been trained on your data. Um, also, you know, it's pretty interesting. You mentioned the Amazon example where it comes kind of pre-learned, if you will. Uh, I don't know if that's the right verbiage here. Uh, pre-trained is maybe better. Uh, in, any advice on how people should think about that element of, of these solutions? Uh, well, no, I think you have hit the nail on the head. It's the Wild West on intellectual property. And so you're, you're exactly right. Like you have, you know, because these are almost all cloud-based SaaS solutions, 
you load your data in it, you train it, you get to take your data back. There's, it's very clear that the data is owned by you. Um, but when you leave, you're leaving that model smarter than, <laughs> than uh, you found it. And your competitors can potentially benefit from that, right? And so that that is certainly one issue. Um, but for sure, like when you're thinking about areas that you want to invest in, and maybe, you know, the the first area that you want to tackle from a uh, sort of testing out a machine learning capability, uh, like one of the big drivers of, of the feature that's going to add the most value to you is the one where you have the most data or the most differentiated data. So anywhere you have a data advantage versus your competitors or versus the market, that's a great place to to look at um, for uh, uh, accelerating with machine learning. And that's the big pro and the con of the build it yourself with these underlying platforms like IBM and Google um, versus buying a productized solution uh, like a Twiggle or Sentient is, you know, you need a lot less programmers. There's a lot less investment to get a customer experience working out of these complete solutions. Um, But they are going to learn from your data and, you know, your competitors are going to be able to benefit from that. If you really feel like you have some differentiated competitive advantage data, um, then that's a good reason to potentially roll your own solution using the 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 more low level machine language libraries from from uh, the big providers because uh, they're they're leaving less of that learning behind for the next guy. Yeah, or you, or it almost seems like it'd be smart to go make a coalition with people that aren't competitors and say, hey, let's pool our data and kind of create our own data pool and you know. Yep. It, I almost wonder if there's like some way to do something. You know, it's a little uh, we, pie in the sky, almost like a data co-op. But no, uh, uh, it's having not, your own pool of your data isn't as helpful. You still need that other data, but you still want control over the data. So it's kind of a yeah. it's kind of a really interesting I think tricky challenge. There's models out there right now. So an interesting one is um, Adobe for device uh, detection, right? So you you know Scott, you and I own a bunch of different devices. They all have different cookies on them, so it's hard to tell when you visit a site on your tablet and then later on your smartphone that you're the same user um facebook and google know because you've authenticated yourself in uh in the on all those devices on google and so google recognizes you across all those different devices so google has a big advantage over most e-commerce sites and facebook has a big advantage over most e-commerce sites in terms of recognizing each user and so you know folks like adobe have literally set up a device data co-op um, so that multiple uh, websites can share what they know about which devices you own, and you're anonymous, so so your PII isn't in there. But when someone you know gets any device that that Scott Wingo owns, they can go to this co-op and find out what the ID is of all the other devices that Scott owns, so that they can uh, do the multi-device attribution. And so we've we've seen it there. Um, we've we're starting to see the these kind of data uh co-ops emerge in a couple places uh i think in some cases even competitors collaborating so for example a lot of the insurance companies uh that have to pay claims when a natural disaster takes out a roof they're all sharing their data their photo libraries of all the roofs that they've had to repair and what the level of damage was and so now they have this big data repository that they all benefit from when the hurricane strikes, they fly a drone over the neighborhood. It takes a picture of all the roofs, and a machine learning algorithm, you know, tells you in half an hour uh, how much it's going to cost to fix everyone's roof in that neighborhood. So, so pretty cool stuff. Awesome. 
Um, and Scott, I'm uh, uh, afraid that is going to be a good place to leave it because it has happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour and tax of our listeners' time. Uh, uh, listeners, as always, we certainly want to continue the dialogue, so please visit our Facebook page if you have any questions or comments. Uh, and if you like today's show, we would greatly appreciate a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, everyone, and maybe someday this entire podcast will be automated intelligence, artificial intelligence. Or maybe it already is. And with that, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.